0: Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. So, welcome to another episode of Swing Podcast. And I'm sitting with Barry and Barry, actually, Barry and
1: Dr. Barry. I don't know, what is Barry in plural? Is it uh, Barry's or what is uh, it? in Arabic it would be Barry Ain Um, or which my Arabic friends find even funnier is Barry Ibn Barry (laughs) um, which they find very confusing. So so we
0: have uh, Barry's father, Dr. Barry, on the show. Welcome! Well, Thank you. Barry, I think you know Dr. Barry better than me, so why don't you introduce <laughs> him? Yeah, I've known him for a little while now, almost in <laughs> my life, I think. <laughs> so it's
2: actually an honor to, to have you on on this thing that we're doing with the podcast with Swing the Knees. Um, I've been in awe of you for a long time, so to actually interview you on this is quite incredible and really looking forward to tapping into extensive history, experience, uh, especially of... Business on the ground here in the UAE, but uh, as we do with all our guests, uh, if we can start at the beginning, uh, we've only got a short period of time, Dad, so we can't go into a lot of detail. Yeah. But a little a bit, of stories, huh? a bit of your story from where you were to where you are today, from a professional perspective. Yeah, very happy to do that. And uh, you're talking about sort of being here with
1: me. I don't know if you can remember; it was in 2010 in Abu Dhabi, uh, the first time we shared a stage yep. professionally, and I had the pleasure of introducing you after I'd done the keynote speech. Um Look, uh, when I was born 69-ish years ago, it was a sunny day. It's probably not the story <laughs> you want to hear. So let's skip forward um, about half a century, and that scares me just to think about it. But perhaps underpinning everything that's going to go on in this uh, particular dialogue, or trialogue, hopefully Oscar <laughs> will come back, um, if... I say that where I live now is my 27th home in 17 countries. I have a Chinese wife, a son born in Germany who's married to a Canadian, a daughter who was born in England but married a South African and now lives in Australia, uh, and I, of course, am an Englishman. It might give you some idea as to why I have an interest in culture, yeah. and not just an interest. Uh, to skip to the end of the story now, my doctorate is in a uh, comparison of expatriates versus Emiratis here in the Middle East, the private sector versus public sector. Uh, so a young man from Yorkshire to uh, a doctorate in uh, international culture and leadership, is, it's been an interesting journey. Mm-hmm. Of all the things I've done, um, as you know some from our time together, I spent quite a long time in the military in the British Army. I was a British soldier uh, for quite a long time, nearly three years decades and only left the military after being injured in the 1991 Gulf War. But what had happened in the between time was that I transferred myself from being an electronics engineer, uh, studying computer and missile systems. uh, And for those of you listening, my son has accused me many times of not being the target audience, even though I used to build these things before he was born. Anyway, (laughs) moving on, um, I realized that I was getting more interested in How did people learn, then how did machines get fixed? That took me off on a whole new journey and led me down a path where many things that I'd experienced began to make more sense. For example, as an Englishman, as a Yorkshireman, and those of you listening from Yorkshire will know exactly what I mean here, I knew the truth. Of course I did, I was English, I was a Yorkshireman. Unfortunately, when I landed in Hong Kong in 1970, I realized I was the one being prejudiced against. I was the stranger. I was the, uh, the Cantonese word is guai lo. I was the white foreign devil. And it was not a pleasant experience being the butt of cultural insensitivity, being the the stranger. Heck, I was in Hong Kong. It was a British colony at that time. Surely I would be normal there. Um, no, I was very much not normal. So as I've done in many places, the first thing I did was to go off and learn some of the language and not just hello, goodbye, how much, another lemonade please, <laughs> and all the other things that we deal with in life um, which led me to meeting my now wife 40, 45 plus years ago, um, but it laid in place something that has served me well ever since and so if I now tell you that I studied three years um, in the UK, classical Arabic and Whilst I am sadly out of practice, and those of you who know languages know, you do not like riding a bike. You don't leave it for a year and then jump back on. You have got to keep your vocabulary. Because within the language is actually the truth, and here I'll use it with small t in inverted commas, is the truth of the communication that you're going to have to develop. Now this is a business uh, blog, this is about people doing business in the real world. Um, in all parts of the real world. So if I tell you, 50 years ago-ish, I started um, learning Cantonese, and then when, when I went off to Germany, uh, before you were born, son, um, <laughs> first thing Mum and I did was go and take local German uh, classes so that we could order um, Pomme mit Mayo. I mean, everybody who goes to Germany has to have Pomme mit Mayo und Bratwurst. <laughs> um, and if you don't know what that is, you've never been to Germany. Don't worry about it. Um, and then, of course, We had children and we had to decide in between traveling around the world, what were they to become? And so we sent them back to England they became English speakers. But of course they had some French and some German tucked away in there, a bit of Chinese going on in the background, visiting the family in Hong Kong. Um, And then dad comes on and starts speaking this really strange language called Arabic. And they'd still no idea why it was going on. But the fact that I've been here now in the UAE for over 20 years, And the fact that in the last 15 years at least my marketing budget for my business has been zero might give you a clue as to the possibilities if you learn the language in the country in which you hope to do business. And and that I emphasise the word fact because it is, I haven't spent a penny in acquiring a new customer in over 15 years because every job I have done in that time and longer has been by reference someone knocks on my door with the name of someone who's been happy with what I've done. And I can absolutely point to the fact that speaking the language of your audience is what makes it real. Now for our point here, let me just emphasize, when I say speaking the language of the audience, I don't mean English or Arabic or German or Chinese, I mean speaking the language of the people you're trying to deal with. And simple examples, if you're dealing with a lawyer, then speak in legal terms. If you're speaking with an IT person, learn the alphabet, mix it up, and spit out some letters. They'll know exactly what <laughs> you're talking about. If you wish to do business here in the Middle East, not only do you need to know the language, and, and yes, believe me, it is appreciated when you can say, sabah al um and actually sound as if you mean it. When you can have a conversation that starts five times with, chock When you answer, and there's a small pause. These are not toys that are thrown out because I'm not interested. These are testing whether or not you understand that before we get down to business, you really have to tell me who you are. And whilst I was studying uh, Arabic, we had a little game. Because the answer to um is many and varied, and those of you who are speaking, uh, speakers of Arabic, will know that it's a game to find another way to answer Kaif And I remember one professor, an Egyptian, lovely, lovely man, um, he finally, well, he could have beaten us any time, but he finally beat us uh, when he said, falcon knuckle, in answer to kefalhal. falcon knuckle. Those of you who are Arabic speakers are now laughing, because what does top of the palm tree have to do with how are you? But <laughs> Being a game, the joke is to take the language into a place that is so silly that you have to laugh. And he could do that um, because A, he was very intelligent and B, he loved what he was doing. And I guess if you want any of the truth, there's another one of the truth. If you love what you are doing, then you will enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Now, again, my son has laughed, he's heard me say before, I've actually retired twice. <laughs> and. I now put in longer hours than I did before I retired the last time, and yet I can still say I haven't worked for 20 years. Hmm. You see, what I learned in doing what I was doing was that I could choose to do what I love to do, when I love to do it, and with whom I love to do it. Now that's a definition of love of what you do it is not a definition of
2: work definitely and just on that the the thing with the people that you love doing you made a conscious decision in your business for the target audience that we've, we've gone about and relating that back to language language isn't just about the words and so forth in the digital world relevancy is key and it is about the language how what words do my my uh, target audience use but in the business world especially here in the UAE language means more than just the physical words that are being spoken and it's something that I know that um, Oscar is in- interested in is the idea of what the cultural nuances that go with being able to say those words and those elements in the, the right place in the conversation but all of the other um, non-spoken cues mm-hmm. if you like um, small things that can derail a, a business meeting can stop you getting the meeting in the first place and your studies are in um, the the difference between Emiratis, Western, and so forth for the doctorate. Can you say a bit more about that in terms of the people that you love doing this with, you work predominantly with Emiratis, um, and then go back into some more of the cultural cues that also have allowed you to succeed in the business that you've chosen to do? Yeah, not a problem, and uh, because I do what I
1: love, it's, it's very easy to do that because hindsight is, is very useful. But one of the decisions I took when I decided to come over here, um, and here, of course, is the UAE, although I was in Al-Ain for my first role. I then took a second role in Abu Dhabi. Um, and then came here to, the, uh, to my Dubai uh, offices, which we're still in now, in uh, 1999. But the major decision I took was I was going to give 80-plus percent of my time to Emiratis. I came to the United Arab Emirates. Having visited the Middle East before and since in various guises, uh, the first time I touched down in the Middle East was Bahrain in 1970, but I chose to come to the UAE because they were the country that were showing the most conscious focus on going forward. Uh, And I go back to the time before the current president and the previous one, Sheikh Zayed, who of course was the president who united the United Arab Emirates, seven tribes of people um, who today, um, and those of you who not noticed it, if you take your mobile with a U, uh, Dubai number and you phone um, Rasul Khayma, you actually make a call that costs you more because you're outside the borders. You're actually making an overseas call uh, to an emirate up the road. And if you've got a car and it's uh, licensed in Abu Dhabi and you want to come and live in Dubai, then you've got to go and license it in Dubai. And I remember the customs post between Dubai and Abu Dhabi uh, where they would weigh the trucks going backwards and forwards. But to get back to the the, the people themselves, uh, and and there's a a hint in what I just said there, it's seven tribes. Now, those of you who are aware of the work of of cross-cultural leadership and uh, the work, well, going back into the the 60s, uh, Hofstede's work, which is often misunderstood uh, and Hofstede's still writing about things that people said he said, and he's denying he ever said it. Um, a lot of people since the time of Hofstede, uh, and two very famous authors, that's Frantz a Dane, and Charles Hamden-Turner um, from the Chairs uh, and Judge Institute in, in Oxford University in the UK, they have written a great deal. In 2004, there was a tremendous study uh, by Haus et al., which not only took Hofstede's work and proved it and, and sliced and diced it to show that he missed one or two things but his, his overall points were still true, we come up with a framework that is still valid today. Now, if we look at this simple one and, and leave leave the, the extra out that Hofstede have found, and for those who are familiar with his work, you know I'm talking about the, the Asian um, bits. But the two that are most useful here is an understanding of Distance, power distance, the, the difference between Sheikh and Shoemaker. The difference of acceptance in the position the person holds. And the other one is collective versus individual. Now, tribes, by definition, are collective. You belong to the tribe, and as part of belonging to the tribe and being accepted in the tribe, you have to give fealty to the tribe. Your job is to look after the tribe. And if you're from an individualist culture, then you say, no, my job is to look after me and my immediate family. Anyone else is extra. Now, think about this. Australians, Brits, Americans. Think about what you... Without knowing anything about the, the research work, are they individualist or are they collective? Of course, the answer is individualists. The great American dream. Land on the shore totally broke, and then rule the country within 50 years. Australians, Brits, Western Europe generally, but Brits, Americans, the answer to the question, whatever the question is, well, me. Now, how do I make it me, get it ready? Oh, and you can have whatever may be left. The exact opposite of that is the tribe that says, how do we, the tribe, win against the other tribes? Now, only that understanding you begin to see why we still have seven emirates, despite it being the United Arab Emirates. You can see why Saudi and the UAE are unhappy, uh, both in Yemen and and across uh, to the east. These are things which actually go beyond the obvious religious and, shall we say, developmental differences. So if you look at uh, many of the companies
0: here have uh, Western expats as senior management, and like you're saying, individualistic countries. So, what are, what conflicts do you see then, by between the owners, many times that are Emiratis, that are maybe collectivist, and individualistic countries? What are, what are
1: the kind of conflicts that comes up in those kind of situations? Yeah, well, one of the major conflicts is that the middle some of the Middle Eastern countries understand that they don't still have the competencies that are required in modern business, and the only way to get that is to buy that competence in. In the beginning, it literally was whoever was the most competent, apparently, and that used to be how long was your CV and how many degrees and which universities had you been to, um, because that was all that people could be judged by. But now, of course, we know that pieces of paper, however many you've got, in many cases, worth nothing more than you paid for them. Um, Mm -hmm. And Degree Mills, there was an article here not too long ago, they sent a reporter down, um, I think it took him 20 minutes and a cheque to come out with a master's degree. Um, I gather um, a PhD out of the States. Now, there are places in the States that cost about $800, including a four-year transcript with all of your marks and everything you've done. That takes about two weeks and a cheque for about $800. So people have learned that pieces of paper and what you tell me you have done are not necessarily the problem. So one of the first things that happened in the Middle East was a betrayal of the tribal system, which accepted the external consultant at face value, because that's what you did in the tribal system. And then they were badly let down. And, and that's not just the UAE. I've been in the Middle East, as I say, for um, a long time. Uh, Oman, I worked there when they were badly let down by Eastern by Western Europe. Um, the, the examples go on and on. But the problem you, you, you ask me about, how can I have an individualistic CEO running a collective organization with maybe 120 different nationalities (laughs) spread across the organization. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why family firms, one, are very slow to become public companies because the tribe just is not ready for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way, that tribal issue spreads across the world. It's not just a Middle Eastern thing. Um, Fons Trompenaar's work, riding the waves of culture, an excellent um, sketch a uh, figure in there. It shows you the difference between collective individual and power distance high, power distance low. And you might be surprised at how many countries are even more difficult to work in than the UAE is, because their power distance is higher. And how, and you, I know you would like this Oscar, how in Sweden for example, <laughs> yes. The power distance is almost negative. There's a set of rules and the king stands in the queue and pays his bill just like everybody yeah, yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, if I were to suggest that Sheikh Mohammed were to go shopping in, in Chuitren, um, it, it's I, I don't understand you Bernie, yeah. because that's a, an idea that's so silly, why would you say that? It? It?
0: It's like uh, I was working for a hotel in, in, in Indonesia and uh, the general manager is called the father of the hotel. If I would call, when I was working in a hotel in Sweden, if I would call the general manager, which was a woman, if I would call her mother, (laughs) she would probably (laughs) stab me. (laughs) And you need to understand these differences. The
1: the same work, and it may even be the same book. Trump and I have written a lot, as as many have. But there's a lovely um, graph in there that talks about who prefers to be left alone to get on with the job. And down at the bottom end of the graph, as you might expect, there's the Australians and your Brits and whatever. And at the top is the Egyptians. And less than a third of Egyptians now remember this is cultural, then you've got to be very careful about trying to individualize it. It's about the culture. But the research shows that less than a third of Egyptians wish to be left alone to get on with it. Why? Because father is the leader that they're Used to mm-hmm. So the father figure, which is why, and those of you with, with Egyptians working with you, or, or those of you who may be Egyptian and listening, you'll understand that when you go in two or three times a day to the boss's office, it's not a sign of incompetence or ingratiation, it's you paying respect to the father figure that is the leader. And yet, if you come from, let's oh, Australia, and I've got family living in Australia, so I can pick on them, because I'm kind of partially Australian now, <laughs> with my daughter and son and son-in-law and, and uh, granddaughter. Um, if you speak with an Australian, you tell them what you want, you agree what is needed, he says, okay, so three months from now, um, you need A, B, and C, and you say yes, and then the Australian leaves the office gets really annoyed when you keep calling him every Tuesday for a meeting because he told you it would be ready in three months Mm. why do you waste my time coming to meetings when I've already told you but of course if you come from a society where when I call you it's because there's some way of dealing that requires you to be there Mm. and it's not a, a mark on any possible incompetence it's simply a cultural affect and effect that you're going to have to deal with. Now the the, the the work also tells us, yeah. But if you're an Australian in Australia, fine. But you're not. You're an Australian here. And now, of course, we get into the well. How far should I become a non-Australian? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so going back to that, you said
0: the Western expat with 120 different nationalities. Mm-hmm. So. That company with 120 different nationalities, what are the biggest challenges you see with all these <laughs> different nationalities trying
2: to come, come And how far and do you go then? Because then you've got to, yeah, do you exactly. take 126 nationalities <laughs> into account? Which I guess you have to to a certain extent, but what extent? And then it's like when you're doing a training uh, session as well, you've got different standards in the room, but you have to manage the room yeah, and make sure everybody's because, yeah. happy that they get. Some what people like, like to, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't spend the whole hour session with one person, and the other twenty people are like, "Hey, yeah. we're here as well," you know. So yeah. how does that work? With the- it did Remarkably easily, <laughs> um, because the answer is in um, communication
1: and two other Cs. Um, there is culture, capital C, which is the Swedish or British or Arabic or Chinese culture. Then there's the small c, lowercase c, which is the culture of the organisation that you're trying to deal with. Mm. And then you have the other c, which actually has got three c's, um, which is communication, speaking the language of your audience. Now the good thing about the uh, cross-cultural work that has been done, it's been done at the higher end, it's not individualistic. So you're going to be wrong if you ever try and treat one Filipino as representative of the Philippines, Mm. one Brit as representative. Mm. So the trick here is to be very clear in your own mind, what are you trying to achieve? Now that's what we pay the chairman and the board for. One of the failings in this part of the world is that many chairmen are chairmen by name only. Mm. They may be the chair of seven or eight different companies. They, even if they wanted to, they don't have the time to be a chairman just for company ABC. So their job is to set the strategy, the, the KRAs and the KPIs. this is the, the job of the chairman and the board. And therefore their language is the one that it's the job of the, shall we say, the CEO and, and the senior team to translate mm. into the lowercase C culture of the organization. That requires the people at that level, not to have a degree in um, astrophysics, if they're building rockets or whatever. It requires them to understand, they do not know the truth. Now, I know this is something you've heard before from me. I don't know the truth. Indeed, when I'm coaching people, and I still deal 80 plus percent of my time with Emiratis, when I'm coaching them, one of the first things I tell them is, don't ask me for an answer. I don't have a book of answers. I have a very big book of questions, and if you let me ask you enough questions, you will find an answer that becomes your acceptable truth. But how can you find an answer if you assume everybody's like you? So the first prerequisite, and I'm not in the recruiting business, but I deal with enough people who in passing will often say to me, Barry, we need a such and such. Do you know of anybody on the market who... and I'll say, sure, what kind of parameters And if the next answer is, well, they need to have a master's degree, I say no. Mm. Because the very last thing you should be thinking about is the piece of paper that goes on the wall. There's an awful lot that occurs before that, which is, so what culture, big C, are you? What culture, little c, are you trying to join? And have you any idea what collective, individualistic, high power, low power distance, and that's before we get to masculine, feminine, and uh, avoidance, all kinds of things. But the very least people need to know is not which college you came from. It's do you understand that outside of your little world, there's a whole big world that doesn't have the same truth that you do. And I now, Um, I long ago learned to give myself permission to be wrong. Which means I can look in the mirror, literally look in the mirror, and say, I'm not perfect. I never was, I never will be. But hey, I'm doing the best I can. Now, how can I help you? And it's at that point, when you stop worrying about who you think you should be, and understand that your job is to help them. And I'm speaking of the senior management here, um, and, and all levels of management. Your job is to help them to get their job done. There's one of the hadith in in the the Holy Quran translates um, very loosely, and my apologies, I don't wish to offend anyone, but it translates quite loosely as, the leader of the people is the servant of the people. Uh, those of you who know the Quran will will know exactly which uh, hadith I'm speaking of. And that's a 1436 year old truth. So one of the things I learned early on whilst studying classical Arabic, you don't have to teach the Arabic people the Western model, because you know what, there's a pretty good model already in place. But if you understand the culture, the tribal nature, the language, and what underpins the language, the meaning behind it, all of a sudden, instead of importing foreign concepts, you find you can deal in concepts that people here in this part of the world actually already know. Now, you've all stood in front of groups, you've all presented, you've all tried to get a message across. Isn't it a lot easier to get a message across when the people you're getting it across to understand what it is you're actually trying to do? Yep. As opposed yep. to some textbook that says, over in Sweden, Germany, England, China, I came to learn what is it I'm supposed to do here. And if the leader of the people is the servant of the people, and at this point, I often then turn to my group of Arabic students and say, which of course is um, the Arabic for, "all servant. And it cracks them up. They, they, they've <laughs> cracked up about being called, a I've got CEOs and DGs, and there am I saying, oh, servant. <laughs> um, but I promise you, and I have people I've been with now for 20 plus years in senior positions around here. And if you ever ask them about Dr. Barry, they will tell you. One of the first things he said was, I'm a servant. <laughs> um, and the the ones who learned that early are the ones who've gone on uh, to become extremely useful people to themselves. And, of course, then that passes on. And it's one of those wonderful pyramids where if I tell two people, each of which tell two more, each of which tell two more, uh, really I only have to say it once to two people. And oh, the next thing face. I know, I'm getting phone calls from countries I've never even visited. <laughs> Can I go and yeah tell them to be a servant as well
2: I mean this this is a subject that is huge and we could talk (laughs) at length there but with the Swanglinese podcast we try to keep it to a a shorter time scale so that people can kind of digest it on their commute which happens to be a bit shorter here in the UAE Um, but just to end it on there's there's a lot of people that we talk to are in business, there are potentially leaders or looking to become leaders something we ask of all our guests is perhaps one or two resources, books anything that you've You've read or digested that you would say to somebody in business who is looking at this leadership subject, they should check it out, read, listen to, watch anything at all. Just resources that would be helpful. That's a very difficult question. Um, (laughs) Not least of which, because (laughs) I I was giving a
1: a, a speech, Uh, the ruler of Sharjah, His Highness uh, Dr. Sheikh Sultan, uh, who's an alumni of Exeter University, one of my own universities. And I began in Arabic uh, apologising for my poor control of of Arabic, my poor uh, grammar and uh, went on and on as as I tend to do and eventually he said um, in Arabic with your permission uh, I will now continue in English and of course he totally ignored me which I took as yes and and off I went into uh, English but not before something really it really did surprise me the entire audience of some 300, 400 people broke into applause and I literally was stopped, what happened and they'd actually applauded the fact that I'd just spoken for maybe 5 or 6 minutes in Arabic and I was an obviously old fat Englishman standing at the front um, and it reminded me that I've got you know, son, in my house how many books I've got um, there isn't a book written that encapsulates leadership. Mm. Now, I'm gonna have some uh, <laughs> a very angry people not And Tommy, if you're listening, um, I'm not looking at you okay. Uh, he knows who I mean, um, and, and you too, Nikolai. Um, but there are thousands and thousands of books. One of the things I say, and I mentioned to Oscar earlier, but let me repeat it now. Whenever I meet someone for the first time, I say to them, I believe that you believe what you're telling me, but I don't believe you. Which causes some some consternation. What I'm actually saying is this. We all wear masks. You're telling me something you believe in or you wish to believe in, and I believe you believe in it, but I have no evidence against which to measure that, so I don't believe you. So, whilst it might seem like an avoiding tactic, my answer is this. One, you had really better know who you are. And two, you had really better know how you appear to other people. Because they will judge you based on what they think they speak, hear, see, or whatever. And as Wittgenstein said, one of the many things I enjoy hearing, I never know what I have said until I hear your answer. The basis as Oscar knows of NLP, and and before NLP, Mary Munter's uh, electronic model of communication. So, I do have an answer, believe me, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the answer is this. Go and find out who you are, because your idea of leadership is very personal. Then go and find out which person you'd like to be. Go and find someone who looks like what do you think you'd like to be, and read what they have done. Right. And then you'll find either you, whoops, I really didn't want to be like that, or, mm-hmm. ah, great, I've just saved myself 20 years of reading um, and study, because I found someone who I can follow. That really um, is, for me, far better advice than a list
2: of books um, that you could read. Excellent. Great advice, great advice, and uh, a great way to end this episode. Dad. Uh, thank you very much for Mind your the time. time. Very, Dr. Barry. Yeah, Mary and Dr. Barry. I'm sure that we'll ask for uh, another <laughs> opportunity because there's so much more that we could dive into. Uh, but for all our listeners thank you very much for tuning in Um, if you've got any suggestions of people to talk to then drop us a line at wishlist at swenglinese.rocks you can listen to more episodes on iTunes Android users you can pick any of your players Stitcher uh, iTunes uh, TuneIn Radio we're on there and we look forward to uh, speaking with more people and having you listening next time thanks very much
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Swanglinese with your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.